This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dina Malandraus. Thanks for listening. Today I'm speaking with Mimi Wong and Eric Bungay, founders and principals of Anarchitects. Their recently completed work includes the Carmel Place Residential Housing in New York, the Promenade at Chicago's Navy Pier, and ADO, a shared design workspace in Brooklyn. Mimi and Eric are an integral part of GSAP teaching every semester, and we are really thrilled to have them as part of the school. Thanks for joining me today, Mimi and Eric. The first question relates to the beautiful project you did called Carmel, which is probably the only successful modular housing in New York that has been developed in recent years. And not only is it modular and kind of the dream of prefabrication coming true, but also reinvents living and life in the city, rethinks scale and was a kind of invitation to rethink density and how can we live in a smaller footprint, but nevertheless in a kind of engaging space. So I wanted to start there because it's really a very unique project here in New York that's also now been published internationally. So tell me more. Carmel Place is a a micro-unit building that was the result of a competition to, you know, create a new prototype. But in a way, we think of it as part of a larger framework of adapting housing to societal change that might include many, many different types of housing in the city. And we sort of understand it as a piece of the city that has you know, an impact on many, many other aspects, whether it's repositioning the relationships between living and working or living and transportation infrastructure or you know, other, other realms. So for us, in a way, it ties a little bit to some, some you know, work that I'm, I'm um, engaging in the studio in housing studio, um, but only in the sense that it's you know a singular experiment that again is within this sort of larger framework. But if we can reinvent living, I think we have to look beyond, in a sense, issues of program or even construction type and so on, and really think holistically about the sort of many aspects of the city that that living sort of intersects with. And so the studio I'm teaching, uh, it's the third in a series of studios, is about density and light, which in a sense revisits some of these contested. Um, you know, aspects of the evolution of housing throughout, you know, the 19th and 20th century um, that have influenced not just cultural uh, sort of perceptions of, of housing, but of course codes. And can we unpack, in a sense, the kind of the drivers of housing by rethinking some relationships between things that are, you know, fundamental to the quality of life, but also that kind of shape, form, typology, and so on. Um, very basic things of of density and light. And so again, we think about these topics and the intersection between studio and work is kind of a small Venn diagram, if you will, because we can do certain things in work and certain things in studio. And I guess in school, we can think in a very expansive way about uh, sort of broader implications of these projects. The other aspect of Carmel Place is that it is trying to reflect and respond to how we have changed, how the family structure has changed, how the demographics of cities have changed. And all of that is really pushing against our known assumptions of how we live. And so for us, it's a, it was an extremely inspiring act to insert architecture into these much larger discussions about housing policy, zoning codes, etc., and really inserting architecture as a necessary act to respond to change and to couple design with policy change. 
And can you tell us a little bit about some of those innovations? I mean, the micro unit competition was for a 300 square foot apartment and there was a lot of invention in terms of the layout and uh, questions of light and size, right? Kind of really pushing uh, code to its limit and right engaging with this kind of exception. It was not stated that Uh it has to be 300 square feet. Uh, It was more of an open question. Um, Given the regulation, the previous regulation, that all new apartments have to be a minimum of 400 square feet, should we make that smaller, given the fact that family units have shrunk, given that you know there are more and more people living by themselves? And so it was a question of how small should it be, um, but still be livable, still be humane, etc. So there were um, there was thinking about the unit itself. Um, making it small, still making it humane, still complying with all the codes, but also rethinking what apartment living should be. And so, you know, thinking about the idea of the dispersed home, that everything should be in the building, but it is not within your apartment um, unit itself. So, you know, kind of rehearsing um, uh, with very tight limits, um, you know, ideas from the 30s, really, um, of collective living, um, but with a, um, a different framework, different different pressures uh, kind of exerting on that definition of collective living. And where did the kind of modular aspect come from? I mean, why was it important? And can you describe a little bit that process of construction and the advantages and maybe problems that come, yeah. came with it? Well, I mean, it was presented to us by our developer partners as... Um, kind of a framework that, you know, are, are you guys interested in designing New York City's first micro-unit apartment building with modules? And so we jumped at that because we're always interested in kind of the influence of technology on on, on type and things like that. And so I would say that it was an incredible experience for us to, to work with modular construction and just to think about two sites in a way, the factory and then the, the other side and this sort of parallel sets of construction, each of which has their own kind of constraints. And so it was really uh, exciting to see the building go up so quickly and silently, almost like a silent film, watching this. At the same time, you know, I think it was more uh, chosen the spirit of a prototype or R&D in a sense, and not necessarily that productive at the end of the day. I think we've kind of learned that to work with modular construction is to transform the entire construction industry, and it needs to be approached as such. And it would be interesting to then think about the idea of, of a factory and the idea of housing and how those two types, in a sense, could merge in, in a different way. So we have lots of ideas about that. But we also think it's a question of scale, that really 55 units may not be the sort of appropriate scale for that. But I think maybe as a first, you know, it was definitely kind of politically important uh, act to use modular construction in New York in that way. Also, as a consequence, afterwards, the City Planning Commission rewrote zoning in order to encourage modular, so they will allow for variances in horizontal dimension and vertical dimension on a case-by-case basis, because they understand that there's redundancies in modular, that you have double walls and double floors and ceilings. So that is a kind of, you know, a small uh, reflection on that the city is interested in that and they want to encourage it. No, it's really interesting also because, in a way, it is the first experiment in New York and in Europe you have many more of these kinds of investments into modular 
construction. And so it's interesting to hear that it's now kind of starting to impact policy and regulations. And But have you brought that aspect to other projects that you're working on? I think every architect is confronted with the idea of a, a unit, if you will, of construction, and whether it's a whole apartment or a prefabricated element, such as our, our wave wall in, in Navy Pier Chicago, which is actually however fluid it is, it's really comprised of these elements, in a way connecting the, fact, the factory or the site of production to the actual thing. So I think we've, we've definitely honed an aptitude, if you will, for thinking about that, and I don't think it's really correlated to an idea of a module equals an apartment only. So for instance, we just finished construction drawings on the Equal Rights Center in Auburn, New York, and for which we're also responsible for the exhibition design, which is happening at the same time as the building. So we have to think about, well, how does this large exhibition make its way into the building? We have to think about the, sort of the pieces that uh, come together, as with any architect. So, But I just think it's interesting to, to think about that in a broader sense than thinking about a module as a home. You know, we're always trying to unpack these one-to-one relationships. And I would say the, the way, you know, one of the things I, I teach my students is to think about the unit uh, in different ways, um, that we always think about the unit as being the thing, but actually there's a typological unit, which is maybe the thing. There's a kind of a social unit, which is maybe the household. You know, we don't think of families anymore. We think of like a great variety of, of types of people who live together, whether it's a single mom and a child or six uh, elderly people who want to live together. And then the economic unit. Can we think about uh, our relationship financially to a piece of property or a space in a very kind of open-ended way? You know, whether it's a co-op or a condo or something in the future that's going to be a kind of a share or a kind of a, a very different model. I never thought about it this way, but this notion of the unit and how, mm. in fact, you've brought that to rethinking work with these kind of shared workspaces and the project that you completed for ADO, right, which is the startup incubator space in in Brooklyn. It's a beautiful project of really interesting architectural interventions within this existing structure. And I know, Mimi, that you're bringing some of that thinking about work and the city and how that is changing mm-hmm. to the kind of core project that, that you lead. Do you want to talk a little bit about Sure. The connection between Carmel and, and ADO is that you know we are really thinking about how one lives in the city and, and how that is changing with technology, with demographics, with different attitude towards place and belonging, and also different attitude towards the definition of what is a unit or, or what is a domestic unit or what is a workplace, right? All these things have become much more flexible and much more atomized. And in a sense, it's interesting because you can kind of just think about it in a very abstract way that there is a kind of spatial, different spatial structures, different spatial environments for many different kinds of work, which is something that the library semester core two thinks about, right? The library is possibly the most nebulous building type in that it is all of the above and it has no form. And so the students start not by responding to site and not by responding to program, but just thinking very directly about three-dimensional space and how that spatial structure provokes different ways of working or interacting in the city. And I think that the other connection is that work has become atomized, like a lot of things, right? So different functions of work and living have become atomized. There are different commercial models of atomizing the meeting room 
everywhere in the city, atomizing the shower room everywhere, atomizing the desk. And so I think it's really interesting to kind of have that in the back of your mind as you work through the known associations of the identity and visual expression of what a library is and just think more purely about the environments that provoke different ways of interacting. It's interesting to think about ADO in a sense as atomization at the sort of civic urban level in terms of who, which institution is providing these services, mm-hmm. but actually synthesis at the level of the building itself, because in a way the, uh, what our client, who is actually Mini, and then, and then we uh, sort of were trying to achieve is in fact a kind of a, I mean we talked about it as a kind of a, a bleeding, if you will, or a kind of a juxtaposition and, and adjacency between normally disparate entities, which is a code nightmare, by the way, <laughs> to actually pull it off in York. But I mean, you know, to bring a restaurant next to an event space, next to an accelerator space, next to a space that is undefined as an educational space for design, with a little shop, with you know, a space where we took a roof off part of the building to just allow for the unplanned, which is something we're super interested in, all under one roof, if you will, is, is kind of an ambition that in a way sounds straightforward, but actually kind of you know, produces a new type of space. And, and I think it allows for uh, the sense of appropriation by people who, you know, come in when they, they don't sense that it's a kind of, you know, monumental library or a monumental restaurant where you can't work or in any sort of the, of the above. And in fact, something unexpected in, in between. Absolutely. Actually, we, uh, we visited it recently. I mean, I had been to events, but the events are always highly curated. But we, we kind of stumbled in with the kids a few weekends ago, and they were playing on the furniture and looking at this amazing skylight that reflects the city beyond. And, and it did have this sense of slightly unplanned. You could just walk in, and you could make your way to the bookstore or grab a coffee, and it, it didn't feel so curated in the same way that... I think other work environments feel like they're promoting a certain level of networking. And I could really appreciate the sense of just roaming in the city and entering. And I think it's great. So one of the things that we've been talking a lot about in this podcast series is making books. And I know you're cooking up something really interesting. And I wanted to get a sneak peek as to what you're thinking or how all of that thinking is making its way into yeah. the book. I think Eric's term synthesis is a really good one, and also your reading of ADO, that it's quite open-ended. And so what we're trying to do in the book is, on the one hand, we um, we are who we are, and we have very wildly different projects. The outcome, everybody always comments, is very different, but in our minds, the approach is absolutely the same. And so we are trying to balance the synthesis of the projects, not in terms of, you know, going project by project, but trying to present the project of the office as one project. And so we are organizing it by media, where we're looking at for example, the photos versus the drawings versus process, and looking at those different phases of working out a project as a kind of synthesized thing, rather than highlighting the separate entity of each project. I could also say, in a way, we're trying to rethink the different voices that uh, one can sort of speak or write from or communicate through visually. 
and how each format, in a sense, has a different set of uh, opportunities. And so even the way we're writing, we're always thinking about to whom are we writing and from what vantage point, and does that change in a different section of the book? You know, what's the difference between a conversation or a manifesto, if you will? I mean, we're super interested in the idea of the almost building, which is for us, uh, I mean, we can give away the title, it's the buildings and almost buildings, which for us delineates a kind of a spectrum of a uh, place where we intervene into the city without this sort of closed, finite uh, set of delineations between types or programs or buildings and landscapes and things like that. So where the book will, will channel a little bit of that, that space, shall we say. But it's super exciting. It'll come out in 2018. Fantastic. Thank you both. We're really excited to have you at the school, but also always a thrill to follow your trajectory here in the city and beyond. So thank you again. Thanks, Thanks Amal. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP in collaboration with ARC Daily. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.